0: Hey, welcome. I'm so excited to kick off this brand new series we're calling Reset with you. And I want to start by telling you the story of why I'm not a scientist. When I was 12 years old, I was at our school's science fair. Maybe you have experienced that, maybe not. Basically what a science fair is, is where teachers tell young curious minds to explore the mysteries of the universe via the scientific method. And then the culmination of our inquiry was usually some sort of presentation, which for me was like a a folded cardboard backdrop that had, had like cotton balls glued onto it or something like that. Now, we were at the science fair. I was there with my best friend, Matt. He was right, his display was right next to mine. And here's what you need to know about Matt and I. So Matt, he was a farmer's kid. He was big. He was really strong. He was really loud. I was a pastor kid. I was not that big and not that strong. Uh, Matt was like The Rock, you know? And I was like uh, Danny DeVito, but scrawny. Uh, and I had a problem uh, where if, if I felt, you know, pushed around, uh, my small man syndrome would kick in. Maybe you've heard of this. It's an undiagnosed but very real uh, psychological issue where short guys just feel the freedom to pick on big guys. Okay? So uh, I also need to tell you about Matt's experiment. Matt's experiment was about the effects of acid on rock. I don't know why. But here's, here's why this is important. On his display, he had unmarked beakers that were literally filled with actual acid. I know. Anyway, now that you have the scenario in your head, let me tell you how this went down. Uh, Matt said something probably about my stupid display that pushed my buttons. And, And true to form, my small man syndrome kicked in and words were exchanged. And eventually, you know, we started getting into it and bumping around the tables. Things escalated quickly. Matt grabs a random beaker from his display and rapidly begins moving the beaker full of acid toward my face. (sighs) Uh, As he's moving the beaker toward my face, he says, and I quote, get a whiff of this. Now, side note, as a parent of a teenage boy, I now understand that this phrase is surprisingly actually very common Uh, among adolescent males in a variety of scenarios. Anyway, he's moving it quickly toward my face, and then when it's about 12 inches away from my face, his arm stops and his hand stops and the beaker stops with it. Now, I don't know if you've seen what liquid does when the container that it's in is moving quickly and then suddenly stops. Basically, I'll tell you, it keeps moving. So the acid leaps out of the container, kind of like the wave in a Gatorade commercial, and splashes on the entire left side of my face. As the acid is dripping down the front of my body, Matt and I look at each other solemnly, and I hear a whisper in my ear of what you might call the voice of reason saying, what have we learned about this? And then the burning started. So I rush off to the kitchen. I douse my entire face uh, in, uh, with water from the faucet. And I'm thinking, not what you would expect about, I'm, I'm not thinking about the excruciating pain from the acid on my skin. I'm actually thinking about the potential of a life of being horribly maimed. Meanwhile, my mom gets a call from the teacher. The teacher says, Hello, Mrs. Morrison. Now, My mom, during those years, when she got a call during the school day, her default reply was, now what? The teacher said, your son Ryan has doused the left side of his face with acid, but the good news is that he can still see out of both eyes. Anyway, this is why I am not a scientist. Now, I don't know. I don't know if you've ever had this moment where you just, you wish you could have a do-over. You know where you say, "Man, if I knew then what I know now, I would never would have done that right uh, i 've talked to people who who say, Man, if I knew then what I knew now, I never would have said what I said uh, I, I never would have dated that person that I dated. I never would have raised my kids that way. I never would have given up halfway through school. I never would have you know uh, I, I would have taken better care of myself I, I, you know all of those things, all of that uh, regret. And oh, how different my life would be if I could just get a reset. And we're used to this idea, right? If our phone is out of whack, we can reset our phone. If our living room is cluttered, we can reset our furniture. And here's the gospel. The good news is that God is resetting the world. God is resetting the world. That the God of the Bible is the God of the reset. In a world that's gone mad because of sin, he's making all things new. And that's what we're going to be focusing on over the next eight weeks. We're going to be in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which for us in our English Bibles are two separate books. But originally in Hebrew, there was one book. And it tells us all about how God is the God of the reset. He's the God of renewal. He's the God of restoration. He's the God of rebuilding. He's the God who reorients us around the reality of who he is. And he's constantly inviting us to reset. To reset our habits. To reset our thinking. Our priorities. Our families. Our churches. He's the God of the reset. He's not the God of regret. He's the God of of the reset. And Ezra and Nehemiah are going to be the perfect companions for us on this journey. They tell the story of how uh, God brings his people out of exile where they've been for 70 years back to their homeland to rebuild their temple and to renew uh, all of their, of their life around the presence of God. So let's open to the first words of Ezra and Nehemiah, starting in Ezra chapter 1. Verse one, okay, Ezra chapter one, verse one. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. So, what's what's happening here? Well, uh, we have this guy Cyrus. Who's Cyrus? Are you paying attention? He's the king of Persia. How's your um, ancient history? A little fuzzy? That's all right. Let's 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 just do a, a little review here. Let's brush up. So Cyrus, he was this ambitious war hero uh, who was well known in a small part of the world, uh, the, the Persian tribes to the east of Babylon. Super ambitious guy. Legend has it that he... Uh, he murdered his grandfather, who was at the time the king of Persia, and then he married his aunt, and he consolidated all the Persian tribes into one kind of super tribe. Great guy, right? Anyway, at the time, the biggest, baddest kid on the block was the nation of Babylon. They were, they were ferocious, they were huge, they were untouchable, but Cyrus he probably had small man syndrome as well in 539 he goes and picks a fight with Nabodidus who was the Babylonian empire and he confronts the war machine and in a stunning upset he routs the Babylonian army and two days later he marches straight into Babylon and plops himself down on the throne I mean this is a stunning uh, turn of events on the global stage And he brings together all of his kingdoms and the kingdoms of Babylon into what was then the largest empire the world had ever seen. I mean, it was so huge that he was now the ruler over almost half the people on the planet at the time. And history makes it clear that Cyrus thought he was pretty awesome. And he explained his breathtaking rise to power by saying things like, I am beloved of the gods stuff like that. And some history nerds even believe the name Cyrus literally means trash talk, okay? So why are we talking about Cyrus? Well, Cyrus, who is fresh on the throne of Babylon, he makes this proclamation, uh, which is basically like an executive order, right? You know what those are. And this proclamation is directed toward the Jewish exiles uh, who have been living in Babylon for 70 years. And we have a summary of this order, in verses 2, 3, and 4. So uh, if you've got your Bible, Ezra chapter 1, verse 2. This is what Cyrus, the king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, he's talking about Yahweh, the, the the, the God of the Jewish people. The Lord has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. And then he keeps going. He says, any, any people here who are in Babylon, you've been exiled, you can go back to Jerusalem and rebuild uh, the temple and from, from anywhere you are in the Babylonian empire. And all of your neighbors, uh, your neighbors are supposed to bankroll you with, uh, with silver and gold and stuff like that. So what's happening here? Well, this is, this is kind of cool. God's doing something really surprising. He's taking a bad dude, uh, a narcissistic, demon-worshipping, war-mongering imperialist. And he's, he's showing his grace through this guy. Uh, he's, he's showing his, his kindness. And, and there's more than that. Cyrus actually pays for the whole p- project. We'll, we'll see this in Ezra and the rest of Nehemiah. Uh, and we see it a little bit in verse 7 where it says, Moreover, King Cyrus brought out all the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord. So this is the stuff that King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian Empire emperor, uh, stole when he raided Jerusalem and torched uh, their temple. Uh, so he, he commissions this guy, Mithridath, um, the treasurer, um, and he tells them to give back all the stuff that was in their archives. So this is, this is Cyrus saying, hey, Mithridath, you know, he's something like the, the Babylonian archivist, um, and he's the guy, you know, walking around with a big ring full of like a bunch of keys jangling around, and he, he goes into the storage rooms with the torch, and he goes, oh, that says Jerusalem, that says Jerusalem, and Here are the ceremonial cleansing bowls and here's the sacred knives and spoons that are used for the sacrifices in Jerusalem. And he puts them all in the hands of Sheshbazar, who is the Judean guy who's in charge of the return trip. How are you guys doing? It's a lot of history. Uh, There's a lot going on here. And as a preacher talking about ancient history, I tend to babble on. If you didn't catch that, you need to wake up and and keep up because we're... We're doing this thing, Door Creek. So there's one more interesting little rabbit hole that we just need to peek through. So I'm going to show you a picture of what is known as the Cyrus Cylinder. So in 1879, an archaeologist was digging around ruins in Babylon. This archaeologist's name was Hormans Rassam, and he found this kind of football-shaped copy of a royal